How do we know if we have fellowship with God? How do we know if we have fellowship with God? It's a question that John the Apostle asks and answers from our passage today. As he wrote to Christians, helping them understand and giving them clarity as to what Christianity actually looks like. So today we continue our study in the book of 1 John. You can go ahead and turn there now. 1 John chapter 1. And we'll be covering chapters 1 verse 5 to chapter 2 verse 2. So if you guys are wondering what Christianity believes, what Christians claim to believe, how Christians are supposed to be like and act like, this book is for you. This letter is for you. John the Apostle, he wrote Revelation as well. He wrote uh, the letters of this, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John. He also wrote the Gospel of John. And at this point in time, he's writing to uh, perhaps Christians in the area of Ephesus in around the 80s AD. And there was an urgent need to remind the Christians, remind readers about this basic Christianity because there were some false teachers who were disrupting the church through the things that they claimed, through the ways that they lived. And so John writes to the church, equipping them with various tests that they all could administer against these false teachers and even themselves to determine the real Christianity with the false. So he has the doctrinal test, and this is what we looked at last week. The doctrinal test here is, do you believe that Jesus is fully God and fully man who died on the cross for sins? And then there's a morality test. Do you actually heed Jesus' words and obey his commands? And then we have a social test. Do you actually love those whom Jesus died for? And so these are the tests that we should be administering amongst ourselves and to those who say that they are believers. So John, in the letter, he returns to these tests again and again and again. Last week was the doctrinal test. Jesus fully God, fully man. This week we look at the morality test. Do you hear, heed, and obey Christ's commands? And then if you're looking for a main idea from the sermon, you can just write down, real Christians obey Christ's commands. Real Christians obey Christ's commands. I'll go ahead and read the text. And as I read, notice that John here is addressing, as he's writing to the Christians, you know, these letters, they're written to particular Christians. They're real letters like we would write. So he writes encouraging these Christians, but he addresses at the same time these heretical claims. I'll go ahead and start from verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So in verse 5, it's fitting that John would begin addressing the character of God. 
Because if anybody's going to claim fellowship with this God, we ought to know who this God is, right? We ought to know who this God is. And just to remind ourselves, last week we talked about how fellowship means being partnered with God in will, desire, purpose. And so here he's helping us understand what it looks like to be fellowshiped, partnered with this God who is light. Uh, during the week, Dodie gave me a call and she relayed this, this excellent example of what it looks like to be partnered or having fellowship with one another. It's like, you know, if you can imagine sort of being on a boat, you know, if you're racing crew, for example, you want your oars going at the same time and in the same direction. Because if not, then, you know, how exactly are you going to be helping your team and furthering the team's goals and their will and their purposes? In fact, you would be rowing in the wrong direction, working even against your very own team if you decided to go ahead and row in an opposite direction or go at a different time. In relation to the Christian life, the one who claims to have fellowship with God needs to know the direction in which God is rowing, right? And his church. What is his character? What is his will? What is his plan of salvation? So that we can sort of get on board with it, submit ourselves to it, and then be humming in the same direction. And so John offers direction, clarity. What we heard from Jesus, we pass on to you. What we heard from God himself, we pass on to you. And declare it. God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. You know, elsewhere in scripture, God is said to be something. Uh, you know, in today's age, so God is love has sort of claimed uh, a monopoly on what God is. And God sort of can't be anything else. But here and elsewhere in scripture, God is said to be other things. God is said to not only be love, but he is said to be holy. God is spirit. God is love. It even says in Hebrews 12 that God is a consuming fire. But here he talks about how God is light. How God is light. And in, the bo- in both the Old and New Testaments, light is a symbol of, of moral purity, of holiness, of righteousness, of truth. And so you got verses like this from Psalm 104. You are clothed in splendor and majesty. He wraps himself in light. As with a garment. So you got his splendor and his majesty's clothing him, adorning him, because that is who he is. And the king dresses in a way that is befitting to his own character. Psalm 27, verse 1 The Lord is my light and my salvation. Uh, but, but, but God is also light in that he reveals or he illumines, he exposes things to be what they are. So, for example, Christ is the light of the world. And so, John, writing in his gospel, this is what he says In him, was life, and the life was the light of men. And of course, you know, you get the wonderful picture of the incarnation where God takes, Jesus the Son, takes on flesh and shines his light into a very dark world. And then also in John's Gospel, you get the purpose for why light was shining in John twelve forty six. Now this is actually really important in relation to what we're going to be addressing, these false teachers and these heretics. This is what John twelve forty six says. Jesus says, I have come into the world as light so that, this is the purpose, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. May not remain in darkness. So those who trust in Jesus actually have a way out of darkness. And at the same time, they will not remain in darkness. 
So the fact that God is light is something that the heretics seem to have completely missed. I mean, this is who God is, right? And the heretics seem to completely miss this. And this brings us to point number one. How do we know we have fellowship with God? Point number one, those who have fellowship with God walk in the light. Those who have fellowship with God walk in the light. Look again at verses five and six. This is the message we have heard from him, that is Jesus, and proclaim to you that God is light. In him there is no darkness at all. Now listen to how he addresses the false claims of the heretics. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Literally, it's we aren't doers of the truth. So what the heretics claimed, if we could just speak about history for a little bit, was that the body was like a shell, like a turtle shell that housed the spiritual. And the spiritual then could not be tainted by what the physical does, by what the body does. And so if the spiritual stuff that actually matters can never be tainted by what I do, well, then let's go ahead and live in sin. Right? That would be a good thing. We all would naturally say, let's go ahead and do that because it doesn't really make a difference. They also taught that you could reach a point, you could actually reach a point of righteousness that is beyond defilement or getting yourself dirty. So again, if you say that you can never really defile yourself, well, why don't we just live any way we want to? And that seems to be what uh, they were doing. But John responds. He says, look, you guys, they, they might make those claims, but those claims don't fly. And he uses some serious language. If you say you have fellowship with God while you walk in darkness, he says, you lie. You lie and you are not a doer of the truth. Now, this is really strange in relation to today's world. We might say that it's like outdated way of thinking or dated language and ideas. Because today you can basically claim anything you want to. You claim anything you want to and we say that is okay. But John says that doesn't work. John says if you claim God, but purposefully live in ways that God does not, he says, actually, that's immorality. We today want to say it's we are morally neutral by claiming anything we want to. Everyone is morally neutral. But the very fact that John says that we then lie if we do that, he says, no, this is actually putting us in a category of immorality. He says, if you claim to be a Christian... If you claim to have fellowship with God and be partnered with God, yet you walk in the darkness, you are a liar. And the reason is so obvious. It's incredibly obvious to John the Apostle because God is light, as it says in, in verse 5. If you are partnered with God, you will love the light and you'll love to walk in the light. And this is really clear from all the way back in the beginning of Genesis. I mean, you know, it's just so clear to John. He just looks back all the way back to the beginning and he says that God's people have always done this. Everyone who have actually claimed God and actually loved God has walked in the light. So, you know, we just finished our series looking at the first 11 books of Genesis. You look at Noah, right? The whole world around him was destroyed because their hearts were wicked. Their evil intentions were obvious. But Noah was a righteous man. He was he is an, an example for us. We know that he did sin, but... In terms of how he lived his life and the trajectory of his life, it was righteous. You think about Israel, for example. They were to be holy, for I am holy, God said. And he drew them out of Egypt so that they would display God's wonderful character to the rest of the nations. 
So there is supposed to be a distinction there even between Israel. They were supposed to have a zeal for God and the very things that he stood for. And then, okay, you fast forward a number of centuries later, Jesus comes along. He is the righteous one. After all, he is God. He is holy and he calls his disciples to actually walk after him in ways that resemble him. The apostles, they go on to say that we are supposed to be transformed into Christ's image of righteousness, of holy holiness and, and glory. And it actually includes sort of an ever-increasing amount of holiness. Generally speaking, the trajectory is an ever-increasing holiness. And it's so obvious that the apostles would could go ahead and ask a question like this, a rhetorical question. What fellowship does light have with darkness? The obvious answer is it has nothing to do with it, those two things. So the conclusion then is you cannot claim partnership with God who is light and then walk in sin. Now here you got, we got to understand what it means to walk in sin. The idea here is constantly walking after in the ways and in the will of sin. This isn't like I stumble and I fall because we all do that. Here this is talking about having our lives being marked, being characterized by sin and a continuous rebellion against God. He's not talking about um, if we sin uh, in a way that where our lives are not characterized by it. So this is like where someone will be able to look at us and recognize, oh yeah, of course I know that such and such is not perfect. And then over here, they'll be able to look at this person over here who claims fellowship with God and be like, oh, this man's life, this woman's life is marked by sin. He has no intention to actually live in a way that, that Jesus calls us to. So that's what it means by walking in light. We're sort of walking in his pathway, living in his pathway. For someone who does actually live in this pathway, whose life is characterized by sin, you guys see that how one, one's ungodly actions falsify one's claim to know God? One's ungodly actions falsify one's claim to know God. Right? They lie and do not practice the truth. On the flip side, just as one's actions can falsify one's claims, one's actions can actually verify one's claims. Look in verse 7. He says, but, he says, now here is the truth. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Um, now to address the text, he actually said, you, you would expect him to say, and we have fellowship with God if we walk in the light as he is in the light. But he says fellowship with one another. There what he's referring to is... Uh, Verse three, you can go ahead and look there. Our fellowship with, is with God, he says, and with his son. So it, it's in our fellowship with other Christians, with other believers, that our fellowship with God is displayed. So he's wanting to know what the boundaries are for Christianity, for Christians in that local context. If you walk in the light as he is in the light, you actually have fellowship with this group of people who have been purchased by the blood of Jesus. So. Going back to the point, one's action, actions can verify one's claims. And John says, look, I'm just keeping in line with what God has revealed throughout history here. I'm just keeping in step with how things have been ever since creation. Knowing affects doing. Knowing affects doing. So if God is light and we have fellowship with him, if we are partnered with him in, in will, in desire, in purpose... 
If we love him, then, it's an if-then situation in terms of how he thinks, then we will love his light. We love his light because we love him, but not only that, we love wherever he can be found. Traces of light. Which is why we can look around at, at holiness in the church and be like, man, I love that. And when I see it, I want to encourage it. And I want to build it up. I want to aff- affirm it. And I'm drawn to those things like a moth is drawn to the light. Because I love those things. And that's holiness. And I grow to love it more and more and more. For us, in terms of how we think, um, you know, we should know that not everyone who claims Christ actually knows Christ. Not everyone who claims Christ actually knows Christ. And we saw this doctrinally last time as people were saying, no, this Jesus that that I claim is actually not God and man, not fully God and not fully man. But yet I claim to know Jesus. Right? We got to look at that and say, you might claim Jesus, but you actually don't know Jesus. Here he actually says, look, this is a legitimate test. You look at the way the person claiming, you look at the way that that person lives. So do you have a category where one's actions can either falsify one's claim or actually verify one's claim to have fellowship with God? Because that's what John is saying right here. And we know this in real life experience, whether we are Christians or not, uh, in terms of uh, how they should be parallel or how they should be dovetailed, a claim and action. So if I claim to love my wife, and we've agreed and we've pledged ourselves to not commit adultery against one another, to pledge ourselves to, to love each other until death and us alone. And then I come over here and I say, you know what, that thing that I said, I actually don't care. I'm going to go ahead and commit adultery and I do it again and again and again. What are you guys going to make of my claim to love my wife? You're going to say, he doesn't love my wife. You don't, you don't love your wife. And hopefully if you guys would be able to counsel me, you say, look, Jeremy, you need to repent of your sin." Do you not love your wife? Why aren't you turning from those things and embracing her like you said you would as you pledged yourself, as you made your claim and commitment? So you guys, I'm pretty sure, would all counsel me uh, to continue doing those things. And if I said, you know what, I actually define love differently. She might think it's loving, but I define love where I can do whatever I please. You guys, I hope, would say, you're nuts. Um, so one's actions can falsify or verify one's claim to have fellowship with God and Jesus says the same thing Matthew seven fifteen. he says beware of false prophets that is those who do not teach the truth he says you guys watch out these guys come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly they are ravenous wolves you will recognize them by their fruits so he says, you look at, the, look at the way their lives are lived. And he says, you will know who they are. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. And then look at this condemnation, he says. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. There, when he's talking about taking an axe to a tree, he's really talking about not those who, once again, might stumble, um, as we all do. He's talking about uh, this tree who bears bad fruit, but that is an indicator of its root. 
Right? So you see the connection between fruit and root? The fruit is messed up because the root is messed up. But for Christians who have been born again and who believe in Jesus Christ, God by his spirit makes the root new and then he brings about new fruit. Of course, we're not going to reach perfection. Perfection lies ahead of us for heaven. But now we're supposed to be growing in holiness, generally speaking, where the trajectory is upward. So conclusion, how do we know we have fellowship with God? Those who have fellowship with God walk in the light as God is in the light. That's point number one. Point number two, how do we know if we have fellowship with God? Those who have fellowship with God acknowledge and confess their sin. Those who have fellowship with God acknowledge and confess their sin. Look at verses eight and nine. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sin, sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So here, this is the second heresy, the heretical claim that he addresses. And we know that by, by verse 8, how it begins, if we say, if we say, it's the same thing we saw earlier, and then we're going to see another one later on. So this is the second of three. So not only were the heretics living in darkness while claiming to have fellowship with God, they also said, look, I don't have any sin. I don't have any sin. And this is probably referring to a sinful character, a sinful disposition, a nature. This claim says, no, really, I am free of guilt. I am not in the wrong, and I, therefore, am not responsible. I'm not going to bear the penalty for these things. Once again, John says, look, you may claim these things, but these claims don't match up to what God has revealed. But they claimed it nevertheless. We have no sin. But Christians have known that ever since Adam sinned, that's where sin and death entered into the world. So our natures are naturally corrupt. Our natures are naturally corrupt. So Psalm 143 verse 2 says, no one living is righteous before you. No one living is righteous before you. And then Romans, the book of Romans, Paul there, he just sort of, he says the same exact thing. There is no one righteous, not even one. So the heretics, they just insisted on rewriting history of God's revelation in one claim, in this one particular claim. We have no sin. What therefore is John's response? Look there, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. So here they're not merely said to be lying like he said earlier. Here, these people, they lie unto themselves and the truth, therefore, is not in them. Now, this is really ironic given uh, these false teachers because they are the ones who said that my, our truth, our formulations, our special knowledge, our words is what brings salvation. But John says there's nothing in them. They're, te- they're devoid of real truth. So it means that if we are not believing in God's truth about man, we show ourselves to be living in a land of self-deception. It's like fiction. <clears throat> and that's what these folks are doing, is they're writing off sin. For us today, uh, in our culture, we, not be, we might not be thinking of, uh, you know, the spiritual being good and the flesh being bad and stuff like that. But yet we too want to write off sin, don't we, in our postmodern culture. Evangelizing the world with the message of fulfillment and sexual promiscuity, one artist, in effort to write off sin, says, living in sin is the new thing. That's what one artist, whose whose, uh, songs regularly chart uh, number one, she says, living in sin is the new thing, and she's evangelizing, wanting us to join in with her. 
in that particular song in sexual promiscuity. <clears throat> the, the culture says, be true to yourself. Whatever you want to do, go for it. If that's the way you want to live, go for it. And then when it comes to truth, we say, well, every truth is equally valid. If you claim a truth, equally valid. If I claim a truth, equally valid. None of them are more morally better than the other. Each are good, even if they contradict one another. But you know what's strange is I think that folks who want to live like that, I think they themselves know better. So here's, here's a real uh, but somewhat silly example to sort of demonstrate how true it is that some truths are morally better than others. You know, if, if uh, there's someone who claims that stealing children from their parents is okay, and then someone over here says stealing children is never okay, which one is better? I mean, which one are you, which person are you going to ask to babysit your children? You're going to go with this one because you understand that one truth is more morally pure than others. Not only that, but one truth actually fosters truth in society and and cohesion in society and benefits society the other one does not another example if you're getting mugged on the street and you see me seeing you i'm pretty sure you're going to want me to believe that mugging and stealing is morally wrong if we say that one truth is equal to every other truth then you know maybe i could watch you getting mugged on the street and just maybe Applaud them. Very good. You know, you are living in consistency with your beliefs, and that is good. Is that something that we want to say? Not every truth is equally good or equally true. What's amazing is that if you agree with that, if you agree with that, do you know what you recognize? What you see in that when you recognize that not every truth is equally good or that some truths are, are, are better, morally pure, what you see is a little bit of God's moral purity, his righteousness, his holiness, and his character being revealed in what is commonly known. So you're able to distinguish a little bit and see a little bit of God's beautiful, holy, and righteous character in what is commonly known. So his goodness, his purity, his righteousness, his love. And in those, those examples about stealing children and mugging, right? We see protecting others, protecting their property, protecting one's health, having laws that do the same. Those things are good. And we see that the, we see characteristics of God, too, when we learn that to take advantage of others and to steal from others and to injure others is bad. So what you see is just a little taste of. Of God's character there. And we're supposed to see these things. And then turn to God's truth. And embrace it. Be convicted by it. Be confronted by it. And also love them and submit to them. So friends if you're visiting with us today. And you know yourself not to be a Christian. Would you rather. Let your salvation rest on your own opinions. That might change from hour to hour. Based on what you might be thinking about. Based on how much food and energy you had. And rest you got last night. Or would you rather rest your salvation on the truth and character of God, which never changes and is always beautiful and pure and holy? What we learn from these, char- from these heretics, we learn to look beyond ourselves 
which is shaky ground, and to look to Jesus, who is the way, the truth, and the life. John Calvin wrote, as long as we do not look beyond earth, being quite content with ourselves and our own righteousness, wisdom, and virtue, we flatter ourselves most sweetly and fancy ourselves all but demigods or gods unto ourselves. What in us seems perfection itself corresponds ill to the purity of God. Friends, there is a better, sure way to deal with sin than to write it off. It is to trust, as verse 9 says, look there, in Jesus Christ. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us of our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Confessing means bringing our sin before God. It means looking to him, acknowledging our truth before him, that we are in the wrong and that ever since Adam, we are born with sinfulness, born in sin. Confessing means coming before God and seeing ourselves as he sees us desperately in need of aid. We have all turned away from God and and basically wanted to live as gods unto ourselves and rebelled against him, earning the just condemnation of punishment and the Bible says also in eternal hell. So confessing requires us to humble ourselves and run and flee towards him. If you want to get rid of sin, don't write it off. Fly to Jesus Christ, who is, as scripture says, faithful. He's faithful and just to forgive us. He's faithful in that he fulfills everything he promises, that you can actually get rid of it by looking to Jesus. And then he's just, just in that sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for sins and forgiving sinners, he actually upholds his justice. Those two things are what guarantees everyone forgiveness of sins if they would but turn to him. So here in verses 8 and 9, like 6 and 7, John reminds us those who submit their lives to God and his truth have fellowship with God and can know the truth of ongoing forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So John moves us along to the third thing. How can we know that we have true fellowship with God if we walk in the light? Number two, do you acknowledge and confess your sin? And then number three, how do we know we have uh, fellowship with God? We never claim perfection. We never claim perfection. Verse 10, if we say we have not sinned, so this is the third thing. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. The difference between saying we have no sin and claiming not to have sinned. So the second and third thing, it appears slight, but but, but it's there. There's a difference. The claim in verse 10 is saying, I have never practiced sin at all. I have never sinned. I've never actually transgressed God's law. But again, John says, look, these claims don't fly. Because God has said that sin is universal. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. You can't claim that you are a righteous one because God alone is the righteous one who has never sinned. And the judgment here, this is, clim- this is climactic in terms of the judgment. First thing, if you walk in darkness while claiming fellowship with God, he says, you lie. The second thing, if you say you have no sin, the sin nature, he says, you deceive yourself. The third thing, the climax here, he brings it home. If you say you do not practice sin, he says, you're saying that God is a liar. He really doesn't mind. He doesn't care. He's actually quite affirming of us, really. But John says, you make God out to be a liar. 
This seemingly small denial of practicing sin is ultimately an offense against God. So by the end of verse 10, their status with the true God, the heretic's status with the true God is clear. His word and God himself has no place in our lives. Christians, though, real Christians are lovers of his truth. As David writes, oh, how I love your law. I love it. It has space in my life. In in actuality, it governs all of my life. And what we do with God's word is crucial here. And it indicates the state of our hearts. John Piper writes, uh, loving the truth is a matter of perishing or being saved. Indifference to truth is a mark of spiritual death. The heretics, they claim to have fellowship with God, to be partnered with God, but in reality, they resemble those who in 2 Thessalonians 2.10 says, they perish because they did not receive the word of truth that they might be saved. So in all of these points, John here underscores the fact that those who claim fellowship with God, are they supposed to love the light? And we're supposed to see it, observe it. Verses 5 to 10 leave us asking then the question. Okay, the heretics are sinners. And so are we. How exactly do I have fellowship with the light who is always pure when we aren't? Remember, no one, according to John, is escaping the reality that we are sinful, that we have a sin nature, and that we actually go against God. We are left thinking, not only are the heretic sinners, but we are too. So what do we do? John says you do exactly what God's word says. And this is what he says. Point number four. This is point number four. Those who have fellowship with God trust in Jesus Christ, the righteous. Those who have fellowship with God trust in Jesus Christ, the righteous. So in a fatherly manner, look, look, look how he turns all of our attention to this Christ. The very Christ that these folks are denying as they start to want to write off sin. He says, my little children, that, that's fatherly encouragement there, right? My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. All those folks, they're claiming not to sin. But yet Paul, uh, John knows that they do in fact sin. And he say, look, I'm writing to you these, these things so you would not sin. I want you to live lives that are different than the false teachers. That's in keeping in step with the gospel. But he knows again that we are not perfect. He knows that we aren't, that we are going to sin. And that we're going to continue to stumble. He goes on. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins and not only ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So even this was to be a rebuke to the heretics and it was to strengthen the faith of the Christians. He says, look, if you want to do away with sin, if you really want an answer that finally gets rid of it, you don't pretend that it doesn't exist. You don't write it off, change categories. So that's not what you do with God. You have an opportunity to get free of it by God's appointed means. Did you notice what Jesus Christ is called? The advocate. We have an advocate. It means Christ is the one who is outside of us. He's the one who's called alongside to help us. We can't stand before the righteous God on our own being sinners, but we have an advocate, a mediator, one who comes alongside, one who pleads our case, an intercessor for our sinfulness. And who does he advocate our case to before? It's the Father. 
you want to solve your problems with the righteous God, you go to God's appointed uh, attorney who is equally as righteous. But make no mistake, Christ the advocate is not like a DUI lawyer. If you're a DUI lawyer here, we're not saying that this automatically is you. Um, But, you know, I have known friends who have gotten DUIs or speeding tickets or whatever, and they go to their attorney and their lawyer knowing that they are going to plead their case. The attorney is going to plead their case because he knows how to twist the blank spaces in the law or he knows how to twist the law itself. So it's the attorney's knowledge of the law and the spaces between the law and knowing how to work the system that he pleads the offender's case, supposed guilty ones of case. But here, Jesus Christ does not plead our case based on knowing how to twist the system. He pleads the case based on what? I mean, what is John so determined to tell us here? Jesus Christ is the advocate. Jesus Christ, the righteous. What pleads our case before God, the Father, who is always righteous? It is Christ, the righteous. It's an interesting title to give to Jesus Christ, but nevertheless, it is true, and nevertheless, he gives it to him. Jesus Christ, the righteous one. So it is his righteousness, his perfection, his holiness, his purity, his very character that pleads our case before the Father. And it isn't against the the Father. Like the attorney in today's world might argue against the judge or against the law. Jesus does this at the will of the Father. So he really is the judge's appointed attorney for sinners and offenders. It's like the judge says, look, you want someone who's really going to get you out of trouble? You really want to get out of this? You look to Jesus Christ. He's the best one there is because he is who he says he is. He is the righteous one. You want to get rid of your sin problem? You trust in God's solution who provides sinners his very own righteousness to speak where none of us can because we are, in fact, sinners. Look at verse 2 of chapter 2. He says, He is the propitiation for our sins, and not only for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. So here, doing away with sins can be accomplished through God's appointed means and God's appointed method. The method is not God simply forgets about sins and pretends that it never happened. No, God is just. Remember that he needs to punish sin and sin and rebellion must be judged and punished. But God's justice requires that God would, in fact, punish sin and his love at the same time means that he delivers sinners. He provides a way out through the shed blood of the sacrifice of atonement. God sent his son to die on the cross as our substitute. To receive the judgment that we actually deserved. And so that's what it means when he bears our sins. And the wrath that we deserved upon himself. And in so doing God's wrath is actually removed. God's wrath is satisfied. That's propitiation. So if we think about definitions. We think God's wrath is satisfied. God's wrath is satisfied. So where we were sinful. God was supposed to set his wrath and judge sinners. He sends his son the advocate, to bear what we were supposed to bear. 
And he was the only one who could do that because he's a perfect one and he receives all of that. So then God's face would be looked he would look upon us with favor. Everyone who would repent and believe because he poured out his wrath over here. God's wrath is satisfied and he looks upon those who repent and believe and trust in him with great favor. That's propitiation. So here, you don't think that the attorney is arguing against God. God is the one who set forward the propitiation and God is the propitiated. His face is turned towards favor. Jesus is the one that makes satisfaction to the Father because he alone is able to sacrifice, to make that sacrifice and to be the sacrifice of atonement. Jesus Christ, the righteous. Uh, Now, if we could just speak a a little bit about this propitiation. It's really important to know that some want to reject this idea and get rid of it. They want to kick it to the curb because it makes God seem like a pagan deity whose anger is arbitrary, sort of flying off the hook one day and sort of uh, controlled the next. And then it makes us and Christians or even a sacrifice seem like uh, God the Father needs to be placated by a bribe, like he's some sort of tribal deity. But the biblical idea of propitiation is so far from that. Remember, God himself is the one who puts forward his sacrifice on our behalf. That's grace, it's mercy, it's love. So so we answer this, this claim to kick propitiation to the curb. We say, look, first, God's anger and wrath is displayed on the cross. That is displayed on the cross. That anger is a settled, controlled antagonism towards evil. It's not willy-nilly. It's not arbitrary. It is, once again, as John Stott has said, a settled, controlled, holy antagonism towards all evil. That is not the anger that we experience. That is not what we experience. Second, this sacrifice is not a bribe. This sacrifice is not a bribe. Propitiation is none other than God's idea, and Jesus was in on it. The Trinity was involved in the planning and in the execution of accomplishing salvation for mankind, as it says in Hebrews 12 too, for the joy set before him, that is Jesus, he endured the cross. Jesus knew what was laying ahead of him. And he says, for the joy set before me, I endure that on behalf of all of my sheep that God the Father has given me. God planned it. God manifested his son. God accomplished it. And God has made Jesus the advocate. It is true that God needs to carry out judgment. But it is also true that in pouring out his wrath on his son, we see a great and magnificent display also of his love, of his mercy, and of his grace. First John 4.10, you can go ahead and turn over there. First John 4.10, it says, in this is love. You want to know what love is, he says. You want to know what love is. In this is love. Not that we have loved God but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. What the heretics were doing, they were looking at that love and saying, I don't think so. I'm going to rewrite that. I'm going to change the very reason for why he came to the earth to die on the cross. Because I'm not sinful. I have not sinned. I don't transgress God's law and therefore I'm allowed to live in darkness. Jesus Christ is not the propitiation for our sins, and he does not require us to walk after him and walk in the light as he is in the light. 
What's amazing is that all the sacrifices throughout history up until Jesus had been pointing forward to Jesus. They were all foreshadowing this great and final sacrifice. The one who, as John would say, the lamb who takes away the sins of the world. So claiming sin is a good thing. Saying that I am sinful is a good thing because it all affirms the truth that we already know that God has revealed that Jesus Christ actually came to take it away. And so we can say, look, I am sinful, just like David did in Psalm 51, and run to God knowing that he abounds in steadfast love and he forgives everyone who goes to him pleading forgiveness. So the question then is, if you are visiting with us and you know yourself not to be a Christian, the question is, why would you hold sin to yourself? Why would you not run to Christ who says, I will happily be an advocate on your behalf if you would only recognize the truth and reality here. Why deal with sin on your own? Why try and rewrite the fact that we are, in fact, sinners, that we do wrong? Flee to Jesus Christ, repent and believe and trust in him. And you will, in fact, receive forgiveness of sins in the sacrifice of atonement that is Jesus Christ. To conclude, since God is light, how do we know we have fellowship with God? Do you walk in the light as God is in the light? Do you acknowledge sin, your sin nature, and then confess your sins that you commit? Do you ever claim perfection or righteousness that is of your own and that is not of Jesus Christ? And then lastly, do you trust in Jesus Christ, the atoning sacrifice for sins? That's how you will know if you have fellowship with God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, again, we praise you for being steadfast in your love. Steadfast. Not wavering. Not doubting or second guessing. But your love is full, constant, and your love is free. Lord, we rejoice in who you are. Because we know that it is in yourself that we can find forgiveness and deliverance for our sins. We praise you, Lord Jesus, for being the propitiation. We praise you for your righteousness as you are Jesus Christ, the righteous, who comes alongside of us and pleads our case before the righteous God. So, Lord, we glory in your righteousness and we boast in the cross of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that we would, in fact, through our living and the ways in which we live, we pray, Lord, that you would help us display a little bit of your glorious character to the watching world so that they all would know and recognize that you are this faithful and merciful and gracious and beautiful holy God. In your name we pray. Amen.